When your aspiration to become enlightened is firm, you should implement it in deeds. These are called bodhisattva deeds, and principal among them are the six perfections. Giving includes 1. Donating material things such as money, clothing, and food. 2. Giving love. 3. Giving the teachings of spiritual doctrines and practices. And 4. Giving relief from fearful situations to all beings, including animals. Help even an ant out of a puddle. Morality refers mainly to the altruistic attitude and behavior of bodhisattvas. Patience is exhibited in stressful situations or used to sustain difficult endeavors, such as learning teachings and practicing over a long period. Effort maintains enthusiasm for virtue and assists all the other perfections. Concentration is the practice of stable and intense meditation, which I will explain later. Wisdom is necessary for understanding the nature of cyclic existence and impermanence, as well as dependent arising and emptiness. The six perfections, in turn, can be condensed into the three trainings of bodhisattvas. Training in the perfection of morality, which includes the perfections of giving and patience, training in the perfection of concentration, and training in the perfection of wisdom. The perfection of effort is required for all three trainings. This is how the six perfections are included in the threefold practice of morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom that is the focus of this program. When you arrive at the feeling in the depths of your heart that you must engage in bodhisattva deeds, these being the six perfections, or, seen another way, the threefold practice of morality, concentrated meditation, and wisdom, this is the appropriate time to take the bodhisattva vows of the practical intention to become enlightened. In essence, all beings are united by the desire to gain happiness and avoid suffering. We are also the same in that it is possible to remove suffering and attain happiness, to which we all have an equal right. Then what is the difference between you and all others? You are a minority of one. It is easy to see that the vast number of sentient beings hoping for happiness and seeking an end to suffering are more important than any one person. It is therefore eminently reasonable for you to commit yourself to the welfare of innumerable others, to use your body, speech, and mind for their good, and to abandon an attitude of just taking care of yourself. Summary for Daily Practice To attain enlightenment, practice compassion by taking the seven preliminary steps. 1. 
pay homage to Shakyamuni Buddha, surrounded by innumerable bodhisattvas whom you imagine filling the sky before you. 2. Offer all wonderful things, whether you own them or not, including your body, your resources, and your own virtue, to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. 3. Disclose the countless ill deeds of body, speech, and mind you have perpetrated with an intent to harm others. Regret having done them, and resolve to abstain from them in the future. 4. Admire from the depths of the heart your own virtues and those of others. Take joy in the good things you have done in this and previous lives, thinking, I have done something good. Also, take joy in the virtues of others, even including those of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. 5. Entreat the Buddhas who have become completely enlightened, but have not yet taught, to teach for the sake of those who suffer. 6. Supplicate the Buddhas not to pass away, but to continue teaching. 7. Dedicate these six practices to attaining highest enlightenment. Then undertake the central part of the ritual for aspiring to enlightenment. 1. With a strong determination to attain Buddhahood in order to serve other beings, imagine a Buddha in front of you or your spiritual teacher as the representative of Buddha. 2. Recite three times as if you are repeating after him or her, Until I reach enlightenment, I seek refuge in Buddha, the doctrine, and the supreme spiritual community. Through the collections of merit of my giving, morality, patience, effort, concentration, and wisdom, may I achieve Buddhahood in order to help all beings. To maintain and strengthen this profound altruism in this life, perform the following. 1. Recall again and again the benefits of developing an intention to become enlightened for the sake of others. 2. Divide the day into three periods and the night into three periods. And during each of those periods, take a little time out or rouse yourself from sleep and practice the five-step visualization given earlier. It is also sufficient to visualize the five steps three times in one morning session that lasts around 15 minutes and three times in one night session for 15 minutes. 3. Avoid mentally neglecting the welfare of even one being. 4. As much as possible, engage in virtuous activity with a good attitude and develop a rough understanding of the nature of reality or maintain a wish to do so and work at it. To maintain and strengthen this profound altruism in future lives, 1. Do not lie to anyone at all unless you can help others greatly through lying. 2. Directly or indirectly help people to progress toward enlightenment. 3. 
treat all beings with respect. 4. Never cheat anyone and always remain honest. In essence, think again and again, may I become able to help all beings. Part 3. Practicing Concentrated Meditation Focusing the Mind Let us take a moment to review how progress toward a meaningful life unfolds. First comes morality, then concentrated meditation, then wisdom. Wisdom relies on the single-mindedness of meditation, and meditation depends upon the self-awareness of morality. Up until now, we have discussed the practice of morality, which makes you more settled and peaceful and your mind ready for more spiritual advancement. With a conscious mode of behavior, concentrated meditation, called calm abiding, can be accomplished. Still, your mind is too scattered for increasingly effective meditative practice, which requires full concentration. Even a small noise here or there can immediately distract you. Since it is absolutely necessary to make the mind much more focused so that wisdom can take hold, I will now discuss the process of developing the profoundly concentrated state of calm abiding. First, I will briefly describe the various types of meditation so that you can understand the place that calm abiding takes among them. There are many ways to meditate. Two basic types of meditation are analytical meditation and stabilizing meditation. In analytical meditation, you analyze a topic, trying to understand it through reasoning. For instance, you might meditate on why things are impermanent by reflecting on how they are produced by causes or how they disintegrate moment by moment. In stabilizing meditation, you fix your mind on a single object or topic, such as impermanence. Calm abiding is cultivated through stabilizing meditation. Another way of dividing meditation is between subjective meditation and objective meditation. In subjective meditation, your aim is to cultivate in the mind a new or strengthened perspective or attitude. The cultivation of faith is an example of subjective meditation. Faith is not the object on which you are concentrating, but an attitude that is being meditatively cultivated. Cultivation of compassion, for instance, is subjective meditation because you are not meditating on compassion, but are seeking to make your consciousness more compassionate. In objective meditation, you meditate on a topic, such as on impermanence, or on an object, such as on the golden body of a Buddha. You can also meditate in the manner of wishing. For example, you might wish to be filled with the compassion and wisdom of a Buddha, and this wish would be your meditation. Or, 
you can go one step further into imaginative meditation in which you envision that you have qualities that you actually do not yet have. The practice of deity yoga, for example, calls for meditating on yourself as an ideal being whose body is made from the light of wisdom. Of these various forms of meditation, let us discuss how to practice the stabilizing meditation of calm abiding. As mentioned earlier, the aim of stabilizing meditation is to strengthen the mind's ability to focus on a single object or topic which in turn enables the mind to overcome problems at their root. It will also help you to be more alert and sharp in daily life. It will gradually increase your power of memory, which is useful in all parts of your life. Since in this type of meditation you are seeking to achieve a deeply concentrated state of mind, you need the following. First, you need the initial cause, morality, which brings you a peaceful, relaxed, conscientious mode of behavior and thus removes coarse distractions. Second, you need a time and place for practice apart from the commotion of daily life. Make time for meditation in your daily schedule. For focused meditation, being alone in a secluded, quiet spot is crucial. Since noise is the thorn preventing concentration, at the beginning it is very important to stay in a quiet place. Consider taking a retreat instead of a vacation. 3. You need a suitable diet, fostering clarity of mind. For some health conditions, it may be necessary to eat meat, but generally speaking, vegetarian food is best. According to the morality of individual liberation, there is no prohibition against eating meat occasionally, but you should not eat meat that is purposely killed for you, and you should not ask for it if it is not offered. Indeed, it would be most welcome if the majority of people did become vegetarian. Some great vehicle scriptures prohibit the eating of meat, since concern for others is the heart of great vehicle morality. Also, eating too much food is not good, so eat less. Of course, drinking alcohol is out of the question as are all mind-altering drugs. Smoking is not advisable. If a bearded man was smoking while entering into deep meditation, he would risk having his beard catch on fire. In addition, you need the right amount of sleep. Too much makes your mind dull, and too little can be disruptive. You have to figure out what the right amount is for you. Finally, physical posture is critical to focus meditation, especially at this early stage. If possible, assume the full or half-lotus position. Use two cushions, putting a smaller one under your rear so that your rear is higher than your knees, the effect being 
that no matter how much you meditate, you will not be as likely to become tired. Straighten your backbone like an arrow. Bend your head just a little downward. Aim your eyes over the nose to the front. Put your tongue against the roof of the mouth. Leave your lips and teeth as usual. And leave your arms a little loose, not forcing them against the body. With regard to positioning the hands, Japanese Zen practitioners usually put the left hand, palm up, on top of the right, which is also palm up. Tibetans put the right hand, palm up, on top of the left, which is also palm up. In tantric practice, it is important to put the right hand on top of the left with both palms up and with the two thumbs pressed together in the form of a triangle, the base of which is about four finger widths below the navel. There are many possible objects of the stabilizing meditation for achieving calm abiding. One is the breath. Some texts speak of watching the inhalation and exhalation of breath through the nose, but do not address the topic of how deep to breathe. Other texts explain how to imagine the movement of breath in specific areas in the body. In one type of breathing exercise, you pull up the lower airs or energies and press down the upper energies, holding them as if in a vessel just below the navel. You can also use your body or feelings or mind or phenomena such as impermanence as the object on which to perform stabilizing meditation. These meditations are called establishments through mindfulness. Or you can visualize the first letter of your name on a disk of light outside your body or inside your body. In Thailand, practitioners often meditate within applying mindfulness to whatever they do. While walking, they are mindful of putting the right foot forward, then the left, then the right. In general, a good object of meditation for a Buddhist is an image of the body of Shakyamuni Buddha. For a Christian, it could be an image of Jesus. Gaze at it to the point where it appears to your mind internally when you close your eyes. Meditate on the figure at eye level, not too high or low, at a distance of about four or five feet. At the beginning, it is difficult to get the object of meditation to appear clearly in your mind. To avoid dulling your perception, try frequent, intense, five-minute sessions rather than long meditations. Four to sixteen of these brief sessions daily is ideal. When it finally appears internally, you have found your object of meditation. Now fix your mind continuously upon it. To achieve calm abiding, both stability and clarity are needed with respect to the object of meditation. Thus, the biggest obstacles to sustained meditation are excitement and laxity. Excitement prevents stability. When the mind does not stay on the object, 
but becomes distracted or scattered, the object of meditation is lost. There is also a subtle form of excitement where, even if the object is not lost, a corner of the mind is thinking about something else. You need to identify excitement and, through mindfulness, not let your mind come under its influence. Lethargy, a heaviness of mind and body, is an obstacle to clarity. Lethargy also causes laxity, which prevents clarity. In coarse laxity, the mind sinks. The object of meditation fades and is lost. In subtle laxity, the object is not lost, but the clarity of the object and the clarity of the mind diminish a little because the mind's intensity has weakened. The mind is a little too loose. The mind might stay quite clearly on the object of meditation, but without true alertness. This state is often mistaken for proper meditation. When your mind is too intense and you experience excitement, you need to loosen it, like loosening a bit the strings of a guitar. Similarly, when you have laxity, your mind is not intense enough, so you need to increase its intensity by making it a little more taut, like tightening the strings. As you can see, the mind needs to be tuned like a fine stringed instrument. The force behind developing concentrated meditation is mindfulness, which is the ability to stay with an object, not allowing distraction. You exercise mindfulness by putting your mind back on the object of meditation every time it falters, which will indeed happen again and again. When you become skilled in maintaining mindfulness on the object, you need to use introspection. As Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life says, the special function of introspection is periodically to inspect your activities, whether physical or mental. In the process of developing calm abiding, the task of introspection is to determine whether the mind has come or is about to come under the influence of laxity or excitement. At the start, periods of laxity and excitement are strong, but with effort, these become weaker and less frequent, and the periods of being able to stay on the object lengthen. Gradually, even subtle laxity and subtle excitement lose their force, and disappear. Ultimately, the ability of the mind to stay one-pointedly on the object, free from the faults of excitement and laxity, increases. When, through mindfulness and introspection, you can sustain the continuum of holding the object, it is possible to achieve concentrated meditation even within six months. Initially, you must forcibly put your mind on the object of meditation with great exertion. Then, from time to time, you engage the object without great exertion. Then, 
you engage it in a relaxed way continuously. And finally, you spontaneously stay on the object without needing to make any effort to remove excitement and laxity. If you are able to remain on your object for four hours vividly and continuously, you have achieved firm stability. Unfavorable states of body and mind are gone, and a bliss of physical and mental pliancy is attained. At that point, you have achieved calm abiding. To be endowed with calm abiding, the mind must have the stability to hold fast to one object. But this alone is not sufficient. The mind must also be clear. But this, too, is not enough. Its clarity should be intense, alert, and sharp. The mind cannot be even a little dull. These fine adjustments to the mind that make it susceptible to calm abiding are not easily accomplished. In Dharamsala, India, one of the Tibetans practicing concentrated meditation told me that the cultivation of one-pointed concentration was worse than imprisonment in a Chinese jail. Because it is difficult, it is important to prepare carefully, moving from step to step. Do not push yourself too hard, especially at first. Otherwise, you run the risk of becoming upset or even having a nervous breakdown. The goal here is daily practice, where you choose an object of meditation and as you focus on it, try to achieve and maintain stability, clarity, and intensity. Calm abiding can also be achieved through daily meditations on the mind itself. One of the advantages of observing the mind now is that it will strengthen your ability to manifest the mind of clear light as you are dying. First identify the mind's essential nature of luminosity and knowing, unsullied by thought, and then concentrate on it. This is one among many levels of thoughtlessness. I will describe meditation on the ultimate nature of the mind later. To prepare for concentrating on the mind itself, you need to overcome emotional obstacles by engaging in the accumulation of positive merit, such as through developing compassion, as discussed earlier. The next step is to become familiar with the nature of your own mind. The best time for this is early in the morning, just after waking, but before all your sense faculties have become active. Your eyes are not yet open. Look at or within consciousness itself. This is a good opportunity to experience the clear light nature of the mind. Do not let your mind think on what has happened in the past, nor let it chase after things that might happen in the future. Rather, leave the mind vivid, without any constructions, just as it is. In the space between old and new ideas, discover the natural, unfabricated, luminous, and knowing nature of the mind, unaffected by thought. 
When you remain this way, you understand that the mind is like a mirror reflecting any object, any conception, and that the mind has a nature of mere luminosity and knowing, of mere experience. After you recognize the nature of the mind as luminosity and knowing, stay with it. Using your powers of mindfulness and introspection, remain in that state. If a thought comes, just look into its very nature, and the concept will lose its power and dissolve of its own accord. Sometimes, through exertion, you can prevent a thought from fully forming. More likely, though, when you reach this state of recognizing the basic, unaffected, unfabricated nature of the mind, thoughts will dissolve as soon as they form, and even when they do come, they will not be powerful. Know that just as the waves of the ocean are made of water, thoughts are made of the luminous, knowing nature of the mind. And through continual daily practice, thoughts will weaken and disappear without any other exertion. This practice of meditation itself sharpens your mind and improves your memory, qualities that are certainly useful beyond spiritual practice, whether in business, engineering, raising a family, or being a teacher, doctor, or lawyer. This practice also helps on a daily basis with anger. When you get irritated, you can concentrate on the nature of the anger itself and thereby undermine its force. Another benefit of such mental training emerges from the close connection between body and mind. When you are young and physically fit, your mind is powerful. It is particularly valuable to begin training then, so that as you age, your mind stays fresh and positive through the body's changes. After all, the human brain is a special endowment, and it would be a pity to let it weaken through neglect, surrendering its powers to age until, animal-like, its only job is to take care of the body. For practitioners, early mental training, and especially concentration on the mind, is important preparation for the final day, when your mind must remain clear and sharp to make use of the special techniques during the stages of death, or at least to influence rebirth into the next life. Dullness of mind at this critical point can be very dangerous. A real guarantee for a good rebirth is to be able to conduct your practice during the stages of dying. Your state of mind just before rebirth is influential in determining the character of your next life. You may have accumulated great merit in your life, but if you leave it with a dull mind, you jeopardize the form your next life will take. On the other hand, even if you committed some regrettable deeds in your lifetime, when the final day comes, if you are prepared and determined to use that occasion to the fullest, your next rebirth will definitely be good. Therefore, 
strive to train the mind to be fresh, alert, and sharp. In difficult situations, it is easy to become emotionally worked up. Buddhism offers many techniques for relieving stress and finding calm in the trying situations we face every day. These techniques vary according to the situation and the person. It is particularly effective to use the power of analytical meditation to address problems directly rather than trying to avoid them. Here are some examples of this technique. When you are confronted with trouble, do whatever you can to overcome it. But if it is insurmountable, then reflect on the fact that this trouble is due to your own actions in this or a previous life. Understanding that suffering comes from karma will bring some peace as it reveals that life is not unjust. Otherwise, sorrow and pain might seem to be meaningless. Initially, a problem can seem solid and intractable until you investigate its true nature. To do this, work at understanding the range of suffering in your own life. Ordinary mind and body have a nature of suffering just as it is the nature of fire to be hot and burning. In the same way we have learned how to work with the nature of fire, we can learn how to work with suffering in our own lives. Consider trouble from a broader perspective. If someone accuses you, rather than lashing back, imagine that this accusation loosens the chains of your own self-cherishing, and thereby enhances your ability to care for others. Reframe bad circumstances as forces assisting your spiritual development. This technique is difficult to implement, but very powerful when you succeed. When you are jealous or wish harm on an enemy, instead of stewing over that person's bad qualities, reflect on his or her good attributes. Most people are a mixture of good and bad qualities. It is hard to find anyone who is bad in all respects. Reflect on the emptiness of inherent existence. This is the deepest analytical meditation and something I will explore shortly. Or you can use stabilizing meditation for a temporary rest. If you cannot stop worrying over something in the past or what might happen in the future, shift your focus to the inhalation and exhalation of your breath. Or recite this mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum. Since the mind cannot concentrate on two things simultaneously, either of these two stabilizing meditations will cause the former worry to fade. It seems to me that all religions could benefit from Buddhist meditation techniques. Single-minded concentration could be applied usefully in many situations. In all walks of life, we can benefit from focusing the mind and increasing memory. 
Summary for Daily Practice Choose an object of meditation and focus your mind on it. Try to achieve and maintain stability, clarity, and intensity. Avoid laxity and excitement. Alternatively, identify the fundamental state of the mind, unsullied by thought, in its own state, mere luminosity, the knowing nature of the mind. With mindfulness and introspection, remain in that state. If a thought arises, just look into the very nature of that thought. This will cause it to lose its power and dissolve of its own accord. Part 4. Practicing Wisdom Examining How Beings and Things Exist To generate the type of love and compassion that motivates you to seek Buddhahood, not for yourself, but for the sake of others. First, you must confront suffering by identifying its types. This is the first noble truth. From the time we are born to the time we die, we suffer mental and physical pain, the suffering of change, and the pervasive suffering of uncontrolled conditioning. The second and third noble truths lead us to understand the causes of suffering and whether or not those causes can be removed. The fundamental cause of suffering is ignorance, the mistaken apprehension that beings and objects inherently exist. Now, as I will show, beings and objects do not, in fact, exist this way. We all have a valid, proper sense of self, or I, but then we additionally have a misconception of that I as inherently existing. Under the sway of this delusion, we view the self as existing under its own power, as established by way of its own nature, as able to set itself up. This sense of inherent existence can even be so strong that the self feels independent from mind and body. For instance, if you are weak from sickness, you might feel you could switch bodies with someone who is stronger. Similarly, when your mind is dull, you might feel you could switch your mind with someone else's sharp mind. However, if there were such a separate I, self-established and existing in its own right, it should become clearer and clearer under competent analysis as to whether it exists as either mind or body, or as the collection of mind and body, or as different from mind and body. In fact, the closer you look, the more it is not found. This turns out to be the case for everything, for all phenomena. The fact that you cannot find them under such analysis means that those phenomena do not exist under their own power. They are not self-established. Sometime during the early 60s, when I was reflecting on a passage by Tsongkhapa about unfindability and the fact that phenomena are dependent on conceptuality, it was as if lightning coursed within my chest. Here is the passage from Tsongkhapa's text. 
a coiled rope's speckled color and coiling are similar to those of a snake. And when the rope is perceived in a dim area, the thought arises, this is a snake. As for the rope, at that time when it is seen to be a snake, the collection and parts of the rope are not even in the slightest way a snake. Therefore, that snake is merely set up by conceptuality. In the same way, when the thought I arises in dependence upon mind and body, nothing within mind and body, neither the collection, which is a continuum of earlier and later moments, nor the collection of the parts at one time, nor the separate parts, nor the continuum of any of the separate parts, is in even the slightest way the I. Also, there is not even the slightest something that is a different entity from mind and body that is apprehendable as the I. Consequently, the I is merely set up by conceptuality in dependence upon mind and body. It is not established by way of its own entity. The impact of my reflection on this statement lasted for a while, and for the next few weeks, whenever I saw people, they seemed like a magician's illusions in that they appeared to inherently exist, but I knew that they actually did not. That experience, which was like lightning in my heart, was most likely at a level below completely valid and incontrovertible realization. This is when my understanding of the cessation of the afflictive emotions as a true possibility became real. Nowadays, I always meditate on emptiness in the morning and bring that experience into the day's activities. Just thinking or saying I, as in, I will do this, will often trigger the feeling. But still, I cannot claim full understanding of emptiness. A consciousness that conceives of inherent existence does not have a valid foundation. A wise consciousness, grounded in reality, understands that beings and other phenomena, minds, bodies, buildings, and so forth, do not inherently exist. This is the wisdom of emptiness. Understanding reality exactly opposite to the misconception of inherent existence, wisdom gradually overcomes ignorance. Remove the ignorance that misconceives phenomena to inherently exist, and you prevent the generation of afflictive emotions like lust and hatred. Thus, in turn, suffering can also be removed. In addition, the wisdom of emptiness must be accompanied by a motivation of deep concern for others and by the compassionate deeds that that compassion inspires. This is necessary before wisdom can remove the obstructions to omniscience, which are the predispositions for the false appearance of phenomena even to sense consciousnesses, as if they inherently exist. Therefore, full spiritual practice 
calls for cultivating wisdom in conjunction with great compassion and the intention to become enlightened in which others are valued more than yourself. Only then may your consciousness be transformed into the omniscience of a Buddha. Both Buddhists and non-Buddhists practice meditation to achieve pleasure and get rid of pain. And in both Buddhist and non-Buddhist systems, the self is a central object of scrutiny. Certain non-Buddhists who accept rebirth accept the transitory nature of mind and body, but they believe in a self that is permanent, changeless, and unitary. Although Buddhist schools accept rebirth, they hold that there is no such solid self. For Buddhists, the main topic of the training in wisdom is emptiness or selflessness, which means the absence of a permanent, unitary, and independent self, or, more subtly, the absence of inherent existence, either in living beings or in other phenomena. To understand selflessness, you need to understand that everything that exists is contained in two groups called the two truths, conventional truths and ultimate truths. The phenomena that we see and observe around us can go from good to bad or bad to good, depending on various causes and conditions. Many phenomena cannot be said to be inherently good or bad. They are better or worse, tall or short, beautiful or ugly, only by comparison, not by way of their own nature. Their value is relative. From this you can see that there is a discrepancy between the way things appear and how they actually are. For instance, something may, in terms of how it appears, look good, but due to its inner nature being different, it can turn bad once it is affected by conditions. Food that looks so good in a restaurant may not sit so well in your stomach. This is a clear sign of a discrepancy between appearance and reality. These phenomena themselves are called conventional truths. They are known by consciousness that goes no further than appearances. But the same objects have an inner mode of being called an ultimate truth that allows for the changes brought about by conditions. A wise consciousness, not satisfied with mere appearances, analyzes to find whether objects inherently exist as they seem to do, but discovers their absence of inherent existence. Such a wise consciousness finds an emptiness of inherent existence that is beyond appearances. Emptiness or selflessness can only be understood if we first identify that of which phenomena are empty. Without understanding what is negated, you cannot understand its absence, emptiness. You might think that emptiness means nothingness, but it does not mean nothingness. Merely from reading, it is difficult to identify and understand the object of negation. What Buddhist texts speak of 
as true establishment or inherent existence. But over a period of time, when you add your own investigations to the reading, the faultiness of our usual way of seeing things will become clearer and clearer. Buddha said many times that because all phenomena are dependently arisen, they are relative. Their existence depends on other causes and conditions and depends as well on their own parts. A wooden table, for instance, does not exist independently. Rather, it depends on a great many causes, such as a tree, the carpenter who makes it, and so forth. It also depends upon its own parts. If a wooden table or any phenomenon really were not dependent, if it were established in its own right, then when you analyze it, its existence in its own right should become more obvious, but it does not. This Buddhist reasoning is supported by science. Physicists today keep discovering finer and finer components of matter, yet they still cannot understand its ultimate nature. Understanding emptiness is even deeper. The more you look into how an ignorant consciousness conceives phenomena to exist, the more you find that phenomena do not exist that way. However, the more you look into what a wise consciousness understands, the more you gain affirmation in the absence of inherent existence. Lust and hatred are ruled by ignorance, and so cannot be generated limitlessly. Since, as we have established, when any phenomenon is sought through analysis, it cannot be found, you may be wondering whether these phenomena exist at all. However, we know from our own direct experience that people and things cause pleasure and pain, and that they can help and harm. Therefore, phenomena certainly do exist. The question is how they exist. They do not exist in their own right, but only have an existence dependent upon many factors, including a consciousness that conceptualizes them. Once they exist, but do not exist on their own, they necessarily exist in dependence upon conceptualization. However, when phenomena appear to us, they do not at all appear as if they exist this way. Rather, they seem to be established in their own right, from the object's own side, without depending upon a conceptualizing consciousness.